Others say it. We prove it. We are controlling transmission. WLTK DB. Let's talk. Alternative Talk Radio. WLTKDB.com. with the unknown and paranormal realms since childhood. After a profound experience with my grandmother's spirit 20 years ago, I have been on a quest to observe, study, investigate, and communicate with the afterlife and beyond. It's been an ongoing journey of exploration and discovery, one that has taught me how mortality and the spirit world are forever bonded through the veils of time. And welcome to another episode of the Afterlife Chronicles and Beyond. I am your host, Nicole Strickland, on the WLTKDB network. That's WLTKDB.com. You can also get to the site by visiting the Let's Talk.com as well. Join the chat room right there on the main website. You can sign into it via Facebook. It's a great way to keep up to date with guests and or and hosts and guests. If you have a question, pop it on in the chat. And I always, or actually, I forgot to mention this in, on the first several shows I did, and I've kind of been hitting myself over the head. So now I've started, I think last week was the first time. I'm so sorry for that. But please take the time to look at a lot of the other shows on the network. There's so many different hosts, amazing hosts and all kinds of different shows on there. So please take the time to visit uh, the website. talks a lot about the hosts and their background as well as their show. So anyways, moving forward tonight, I'm going solo again, which is fine. Uh, My guest for tonight could not make it, so we will reschedule him. No problem at all. So today is April 15th, 2021. So this is the 100, if I did my math right, the 109th anniversary of the RMS Titanic's sinking. And so it's a date that many of us will remember. Many of us have had relatives that actually, including myself, that uh, perished on the vessel. So it's a very meaningful date for me. Uh, the RMS Titanic has been, you know, in, in news, it's been in uh, pop culture, it's been in film, it's been in TV. So a lot of us already know a little bit about the history of the liner, but I'm just going to give you some points real quick here. So the Titanic was a British passenger liner of the White Star Line. It obviously struck an iceberg on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City on April 15th, 1912. More than 1,500 people perished. I believe just over 700 people survived. So it actually, the problems actually started the night prior. So it would have been April 14th at 11.40 p.m. Lookout Frederick Fleet spotted an iceberg immediately in front of the ship. It was called on First Officer William Murdoch, 
who ordered the Titanic to be steered around the iceberg with engines reversed. Obviously, it was too late as the starboard side of the ship hit the iceberg, creating many holes beneath the waterline. So on the 15th of April, between 2.10 and 2.15 a.m., over two and a half hours after the collision, her rate of sinking increased as her boat deck slipped underneath the icy cold waters with sea water pouring right in through the open hatches and grates. So when 2.20 came, that is the time when the ship slipped through the water and made its way down to the bottom of the ocean. So when you think about this for the, for the people still on board at this time, they either drowned, maybe fell, had an accident, hit their head when the ship broke apart, or they died by the negative two Celsius degree water temperature. So when you get in water that freezing, you only have minutes to live. I don't know what would have been worse. I don't know. It's just a tragedy that I just, I try to put myself in their shoes and it's hard to, and, you know, I, I wish them all the best. I wish that for those who have perished, that they have safely found their way home and are at peace. And this goes for the ship itself as well, because all ships have a soul. She lives on, obviously, in modern times. So that's a good thing. So anyways, at 4 a.m., I believe it was the next day on the 15th, uh, that's when the RMS Carpathia arrived in response to her many distress calls and, and rescued the surviving passengers. So I just wanted to honor the RMS Titanic today, as it is April 15th, 109 years later, by mentioning her. And now I'm going to offer a few moments of silence in memory of the ship and those beautiful souls who perished. Okay. So moving on. So I thought today, since my guest, or tonight rather, since my guest Uh, could not make it, I thought, okay, let's go solo and have a very easy night of just sharing some ghost stories. Now, some of these, some of you may have heard on other shows, uh, because I've been a guest on numerous other radio shows, and I've shared uh, experiences at some of the following locations that I'll discuss tonight, but that's okay. I've never actually done this on my own show, so that's what I'm doing tonight. I want to start out by talking about Las Vegas. Uh, So when I was very young, I was born in Huntington Beach, California. Most of my family uh, resided or does reside in in San Diego, California, uh, some on the East Coast as well. But uh, so I was born in Huntington Beach, California, and I lived there for about, oh, a year and a half. And then my dad got a job as a pharmacist in Las Vegas, Nevada. And so my mom, dad, and I moved out to Las Vegas, and they bought a brand new home at the time. This was like 1980, 1981. So a brand new home out there. And I was like very little. I think I, like I said, I was about one and a half or two when I moved to Las Vegas. And then I lived in Las Vegas until I was about six and a half or seven. And that's when I came out to San Diego, California. My parents separated and divorced. So we, my mom and I came out to be with family. So like I said, like I've said before on other shows, I've always had this like amazing interest in the paranormal and things that go bump in the night. And so as I got older, 
I would say middle school, high school days, I started to read a lot on the subject, pretty, in, pretty much anything that talked about ghosts and hauntings, I would get my hands on. But thinking about my younger years, I did have a very profound encounter. And I believe this may have been the very first encounter that I actually remember. There may have been others, and I just totally don't remember. Maybe at some point in my life, I will remember them. But one that was quite interesting to me sticks out in my mind. And that was, I was probably about five years old. And uh, we had a pool in our backyard. So during the summertime, I mean, that's pretty much where I lived. I, I was like a fish in the water and was always out in the pool, it seemed. So it was summertime and it was around dusk. So the sun was just about to set and we had the pool light on in the pool and everything. And so it was time to get out. And I remember my mom, dad and I standing right at the edge of the pool and we were drying off. And then all of a sudden, I saw this like black shadowy figure that seemed to be morphing into a humanoid shape. And it came toward us moved right through us and then just dissipated. And I and I don't know why I remember this, but don't remember other occurrences. If there were other occurrences, I don't know. It's one of those weird things. But I remember, distinctly remember asking, mommy, daddy, did you see the draft? D-R-A-F-T. Mommy, daddy, did you see the draft? Now, what? I mean, I was like five years old, right? So why would I have termed what I saw as a draft? I still don't have the answer to that. I, have, I don't know, but I distinctly remember asking that. So that was an occurrence that stands out in my mind. And then, of course, living in the same house, I did what my parents probably thought at first. They probably thought, you know, Nicole's at that age where she has imaginary friends. That's who she's talking to. No big deal. But in retrospect, I can honestly tell you now having years in the paranormal field that I was, I'm pretty sure that I was speaking to an actual earthbound entity. I think now looking back, he was probably from the gold rush days. I distinctly remember him kind of had a whitish hair. Uh, a a growing beard, uh, slacks that looked like jeans of some sort, but I can't tell you if that's what they were. And uh, a red and black sort of checkered, uh, long sleeved, I guess, shirt, which to me would be more modern than the gold rush days. But I don't know. It's just one of those things. And so I, I communicated with him, he would visit me. He wasn't anything scary. I wasn't fearful of him. But uh, he did come visit me and we communicated. I can't tell you exactly what we talked about. I was so very young. But those are two uh, profound experiences when I was super young that really, I guess, spurred on my interest in the paranormal. And so as I mentioned, I pretty much got my hands on anything, whether it was an article or a book or any sort of TV show that talked about the supernatural, um, mystery, uh, ghosts, hauntings, anything paranormal I was extremely interested in. So fast forward to my undergraduate years in college, and I've shared this before, I know, but I've, 
I think I've shared it one time on my show, but it, it bears repeating because it was so profound. And if you talk to a lot of paranormal investigators, you will often hear them say that there was either a series of events or one profound event that catapulted them on their journey in investigating the unknown. And so this singular experience, of course, with my uh, maternal grandmother's spirit is actually what that did. So I credit my grandmother for pretty much starting me on this journey. The, let's say I didn't have the experience with her. Of course, the interest would have always been there. I can't tell you whether or not I would have actually delved into active research of the paranormal. I may have, I don't know, it's hard to say. But I can say that after having this experience, absolutely got the wheels in motion and catapulted me on my journey as a paranormal investigator and researcher. So I attended the University of Arizona which is in Tucson, Arizona, from 1997 to 2001. So it was my senior year of college. And the night before my grandmother, her name was Helen Lopinto, the night before she died, she called me wanting to know if I was okay. That was her main mission with the phone call. And to myself, I was thinking, why is she calling me at like 4.30 in the afternoon wanting to know if I'm okay? It's so random and so odd. Now I know why, I think. I think that she was preparing for her transition and she was making the rounds to various family members because she wanted to know that they were at peace when she finally departed. That's what I think. Okay, so I talked with her for a little bit. I wish I would have spent more time on the phone with her. But I spent some time with her, maybe about 20 minutes, and told her, you know, I'm fine, I'm busy. You know, it's my last year of college. I'm super busy, um, but doing really well. And we ended up on obviously great terms. And, you know, we said we love you to each other and all that. So fast forward to the next day, about the same time, it was about, I want to say 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon. I get a call from my mom, Norma. Uh, so my obviously her daughter. Okay. This was my maternal grandmother. And so I could tell immediately from when answering the phone, I could tell from my mom's tone, I could tell from my mom's voice that something tragic happened. I didn't know what. So I got on the phone and I said, hello. And it was my mom. She said, hi, sweetheart. I just want to let you know that I love you so much. And that's when I said, I proceeded to say, mom, what happened? I think I interrupted her because she was in the process of of saying, I love you so much, sweetie, but grandma passed away early this morning. So of course, I felt pretty much everything underneath me drop out. I just felt like my, like the blood drained from my body, so to speak. You know, I just felt like my stomach just made a leap. And I instantly started crying. I was very, very, very upset. I was very close to my grandmother, very close. And so I made reservations to immediately fly from Tucson to San Diego. It's like an hour, if that, 45 minutes to an hour flight. And I came the next day. That I believe I came the next day. And so my grandmother was one of those private people. She didn't really want a funeral, which is fine. So the family honored that. And so I remember going to Greenwood Mortuary. That's where she and her husband, uh, my grandfather, Andrew F. Lopinto, MD, are resting. There are spots right in the mausoleum there, beautiful spot. 
And so my mom, my aunt, her other daughter, Ellen's other daughter, and I were the three that uh, got to see her in a viewing. And so I remember seeing her, and I don't mean to be morbid here, but I remember seeing her in her casket. It was a beautiful white casket. She was wearing one of her uh, favorite house dresses, and she looked extremely peaceful. And so I laid in a three-part picture. Um, it was it had three frames in it: one of me, and then uh, one of my one of her other grandchildren, one of Ryan, and then one of Jenny. She had three grandchildren, so me, Ryan, and Jenny. And so I placed that picture frame in her hand, I believe, or or in her pocket. I don't really remember, as along with the little note that I wrote to her. And that I know for sure went in her pocket. And so that was that. It was it was uh, healing in a way to see her peacefully laying in her casket. And so after spending some time with my mom for a couple of days, I then went back out to Tucson to resume my studies. And that's when the profound encounters started that I had not once experienced prior to my grandmother's death. It started with the front door doorknob rattling by itself, as did my bedroom doorknob. And of course, living in an apartment, I'm like, okay, I want to rule out vibration. Maybe it's my neighbors, yada, yada, yada. I could not find an answer to why the doorknobs all of a sudden started doing this. And I will make mention that my grandmother was often OCD in life. (laughs) I'm saying that kind (laughs) kind of jokingly because she was. And she would go around the house at night checking all the doorknobs to make sure the doors were locked, right? So I connected those two events. And so then I started to think, okay, I don't think I even connect the dots at the time that it was her. Fast forward a couple of days, uh, give or take, and I was sitting on my bed uh, doing some sort of studies. I think I was writing a paper, reading chapters in, in my books. I don't remember exactly what I was doing. And I felt a disembodied hand caress my face. And it felt as though it came from someone that, I was very close to and that I loved very much. That's actually when I started to connect the dots and I started to think, okay, could this be Helen trying to communicate with me from beyond? I kind of left it at that. So give or take another couple of days went by, uh, give or take, like I said, I don't have the exact days uh, remembered here. And I was again sitting on my bed doing my studies. And that's when I noticed out of my left peripheral vision, someone standing near my closet area. So I had kind of a big bedroom. And to my left, there was like a little hallway that had my closets on each side and that led into the bathroom. And so when I looked, I saw my grandmother's apparition, if you will, or so what I think maybe it was a bereavement hallucination on my part. I don't know. I do think it was her though. She looked about 10 years younger. She was uh, kind of smiling, but she didn't say anything. She was wearing one of her favorite blue and white flowered house dresses. And it looked as though there was a spotlight shining against her back. So there was like this outer white halo around her body. And, you know, having a sighting like that is very quick. And so... This seemed to last at least a second or two. 
And then I saw her just dissipate before my eyes. And the same thing happened a couple of other times. So that's what leads me to question whether or not it was an actual spirit sighting or if it was more or less a bereavement hallucination on my part. I'm still debating that. I'm not 100% sure. But whatever the case, uh, she somehow made her way to me. And that is actually what catapulted me on my journey as a paranormal researcher. And I credit her. I credit that to her to this day. So grandma, thank you so much. Anyways, we're going to take a two minute break. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Afterlife Chronicles and beyond on the WLTKDB network. I'm your host, Nicole Strickland. Stay tuned. Our Medic Alert bracelet warns first responders that we kiss back during CPR. Pucker up, buttercup. We are controlling transmission. WLTK DB. Let's talk. Alternative Talk Radio. WLTKDB.com. Patreon is a place for creators. We're one of them. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash WLTKDB. Check out all the unique support tiers we offer. You can get early release episodes, station mugs and t-shirts, free station service work, and much more. Help the station reach its $1,000 per month goal to make our station totally ad-free. Patreon.com slash WLTKDB. We appreciate your support. Ever wanted to host your own radio show? If your answer is yes, then the time to act is now. WLTKDB Let's Talk is now accepting new programming more affordable than ever. You create the show idea and we'll take care of the rest. Not only do we create your program intro and provide broadcast training, but also syndicate you to popular outlets like Apple and Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and more. You get all of this starting at 100 bucks per month. Three packages to choose from and built to make your wallet happy. Contact us at WLTKDB.com with your show idea and let's bring your dream to life. All topics accepted and you have full rights to your program. Contact us today and reserve your spot on WLTKDB Let's Talk. What are you waiting for? Let's do this. Two minutes past the hour, you are tuning in to the Afterlife Chronicles and Beyond Radio Show. I am your host, Nicole Strickland, on the WLTKDB network. That's WLTKDB.com, as well as the Let's Talk.com. If you haven't yet joined us, now is your time. You can join the chat room right there on the on the website. So before the break, I was talking a little bit about uh the two very profound experiences that I had uh, as a young child uh, segueing into the college experience I had with my maternal grandmother, Helen Lopinto, uh, which actually, like I said, propelled me on my journey in, in paranormal research. Of course, at the beginning there, I did a little in memoriam uh, segment for the RMS Titanic as today is the 109th anniversary of its sinking. So I thought that 
you know, because tonight my guest couldn't make it, which is fine. Uh, I like to have other material prepared in the event that guests can't come on. I thought, okay, I'll just go solo again, which is fine. And so I thought I'd uh, share a little bit about some of my favorite uh, paranormal investigations that I've done throughout the years. Uh, as some know, I worked a lot with various Southern California paranormal teams, uh, but I early after a couple of years, I, I kind of got the inkling and the interest to start my own team. And so that's when the San Diego Paranormal Research Society came to be in, in October of 2009. I can't believe it's been that long. And so uh, I'm very proud of it. It's been a lot of work and prog- progress. And, you know, it's we've had some members come and go, but the, where it is right now is where it needs to be. It really does take a lot of work to run a paranormal team. It really does. It's not something that is necessarily, it's not hard. It's not easy either. It's time consuming. And if you don't have the passion for it, then I don't really see it going anywhere. So it really has to be comprised of people that really want to work hard in the trenches of paranormal research. And that's what we're all about. We're all about, uh, we specialize in ghosts and hauntings, of course, um, but you know, we like to research other areas of the supernatural and we're comprised of people that have experience and that are dedicated researchers in the field. So we've been able to investigate a lot of the iconic historical locations in San Diego. Uh, my gosh, many in Old Town, Maritime Museum of San Diego, uh, vessels such as the Berkeley and Ferry Boat, which Berkeley and Star of India, Berkeley Ferry Boat and Star of India, which I'll get to in a little bit. Uh, Rancho Buena Vista Adobe, uh, places in Julian, uh, pretty much all over the county. I mean, there's if you just go to our website, we pretty much list uh, a lot of our historical investigations on our site. So I thought I would take the time tonight, and it's going by so fast, my goodness, to we might have to have a part two of this, of course, which is fine, to kind of just go over a little bit of, share a little bit about some of our uh, profound experiences that we've had at, at some of these sites. So I'm going to start, you know, they're not really in a specific order. It's just basically how I've laid them out. I want to start with the Lincoln Theater, which is in Decatur, Illinois. Before I go on any further, I want to say that um, I've been a part of the Ghost Research Society headed up by uh, renowned researcher Dale Katzmerich. Since 2009, uh, currently I'm their uh, California coordinator. And so out in, I think it was 2009, yeah, it was 2009, I went out there for a couple of weeks and I was able to investigate Waverly Hills Sanatorium with them, uh, Robinson Bowling Alley. We did some excursions out in Louisville, Kentucky, where the uh, Waverly is located, And then we also uh, attended Troy Taylor's Haunted America Conference, and he has an annual conference out there, typically in Decatur. I think, I'm not sure if, I don't think last year it was at Decatur, but it it was held at the Lincoln Theater for for several years. So we were able to attend that conference. It's fantastic. Troy also, I believe it was 2011, uh, had that same conference out here. It was the West Coast conference of the haunted america west coast version of the haunted america conference and that was a lot of fun i was able to to give a presentation about the queen mary at that and that was just phenomenal so anyways uh, as part of the conference the ghost research society was given um, exclusive uh i guess entrance to the 
to the Lincoln Theater and we were able to conduct an overnight investigation. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal historical place. I love doing theaters. Theaters are uh, one of those places, I think, that really hold a lot of spiritual energy. I mean, when you think about it, the scores of people that go in usually are happy. You know, they're elated. Uh, there's like a almost a euphoric sense with theaters. But of course, as is the case with the Lincoln, tragedy struck as well. And that can also cater to a lot of the leftover paranormal occurrences. So the Lincoln Theater opened, I believe, and a lot of this comes from Troy Taylor's article on it. So I do want to give him credit. It opened in 1916. The very first real building on the site indicator was, uh, according to his notes, was the Priest Hotel. And sadly, on April 21st, 1915, a fire broke out and destroyed the hotel. Two people died and many other buildings were damaged. The two people that passed away were William E. Graham. He was an engineer for the Decatur Bridge Company and C.S. Guild. He was a traveling salesman from Lockport, New York. They both sadly perished in the fire. I guess the fire was started by some oily rags that were left near the hotel's boiler. So according to Troy's notes, the hotel was never rebuilt and the Lincoln Theater actually took its place. And so uh, apparently a number of other buildings have been destroyed by fire, too, in the town of Decatur, including the Powers Opera House. Apparently that had two fires. So there's something with fires in that town. Getting back to the Lincoln Theater, the grand opening was on October 27, 1916, with stage comedy hit the uh, with, with stage comedy hit the trail holiday starring Frank Otto. It had 1,246 seats. Many famous stars came through the theater during its time. Ethel Barrymore, Al Jolson, Edwin, Jeanette McDonald, and even Houdini himself. At the time that Houdini came to the came to the theater he was not yet a worldwide sensation interestingly and when we were investigating uh the hotel uh, nicole tito lisa crick and i uh being the evpers of the group so to speak we branched off and at one point we were down uh in the dressing room area and you can still see the metal hooks on the wooden stage that belonged to Houdini's trapdoor, I guess that was named the Houdini hole. And so that was interesting to see. I actually have pictures of the hooks and everything. And so I'm going to play an EVP in just a couple of minutes that may or may not be Houdini. I'm not saying it is. I'd have to, you'd have to really compare his voice and do some forensic voice analysis. But the fact that the word of the EVP correlates to Houdini and what Houdini did, it leaves you questioning, okay, could that be him? So before I get into that, I do want to mention that uh, uh, the, uh, a person named Red, his, his name, he was nicknamed Red. He was a stagehand at the Lincoln Theater during the days of live performances. So apparently his, his spirit has been seen many times, heard many times throughout the theater. And I guess the story claims that he fell from the catwalks and collided with the pin rail of the sand trap, which was a platform way high above the stage. But uh, in actuality, and a lot of this is due to Troy's research, he's, he's a fantastic uh, researcher, archive researcher, as well as paranormal researcher. He uh, 
found out that Red passed away at the theater after taking a nap after lunch and never waking up in 1927. So in addition to Red, there have been numerous sightings in the theater, shadow uh, form sightings, disembodied voices, cold spots, the feelings of being watched, uh, that sort of thing. Pretty much all the typical sorts of paranormal occurrences that you will find in iconic haunted locations. So getting back to the EVP session that Nicole Tito, Lisa Crick, and I did in the dressing rooms. Again, this was in the summer of 2009. Uh, I do have a profound EVP to play here. Uh, Before I play it, I do want to say that this is probably one of the best captures. I would consider it a class A EVP as opposed to a class B or C. Uh, What's interesting is that Nicole had an audio recorder, I had an audio recorder, and Lisa had an audio recorder. Nicole and I captured this EVP. Lisa did not, probably because she had her recorder on voice activation mode. That could be. But interestingly, I'm going to go, I'm going to play it now. And then after I play it, um, I'll talk a little bit more about it. So we'll go ahead and cue that. It's called Lincoln Theater. I'll just say Lincoln Theater EVP. We can go ahead and play that now. What are you going to perform tonight? Magic. What are you getting ready for? What are you going to perform tonight? Magic. What are you getting ready for? Magic. 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 Okay. So, I am sure that you hear you hear me asking the question what are you going to perform tonight then there's the ev evp response of magic and then you hear me again saying what are you getting ready for so you can tell in that clip that we're oblivious to even hearing that because if we had heard that live we would have documented that and none of us documented that And so Nicole actually was the one, Nicole Tito was actually the one to review her audio the first, you know, for the first time. And she was like, you guys got to check this out. So of course, that's when Lisa and I checked our audio recorders. And that's when I found it was on mine, but not on Lisa's. So that is a class A EVP that shows intelligence. It's responding to our question. It also gives a glimpse into the history of that site being that Houdini and even other performers perform there, whether that's Houdini, I don't know. Could be him. I I do remember having Nicole and Lisa on my show a couple of months ago and one of their friends knew, Oh gosh, I forget who it was, but I think it was the manager or someone very uh, well known to the Lincoln theater and claims that the voice of magic was actually his voice. So it may not be Houdini, but, just an excellent, excellent capture nonetheless. So I love talking about it. So again, it's at 634. The, sh- the show is only an hour long. So of course, we may not get to all the stories, but that's okay. I'll just have a part two, right? Nothing wrong with that. So moving on, uh, while I was there in 2009 with the Ghost Research Society, we investigated overnight a full-on eight-hour, 10-hour investigation of Waverly Hills Sanatorium. Rosemary Ellen Guiley was there and did a lot of her spirit box work, her Frank's box work, and it was just an amazing overall night. 
And so just a little history on the Waverly Hills before I get into some of our experiences, mainly having to do with the shadow figure, shadow form phenomenon. I'm going to take a drink of water because my voice is going here. Sorry. Okay. So the Waverly Hills, it's a Tudor Gothic revival style, style architecture. It is listed on the National Register. The land was originally purchased by Major Thomas H. Hayes in 1883 for a schoolhouse for his daughters to attend. The actual Waverly Hill Sanatorium started out as a two-story building with construction beginning in 1908 to accommodate about 40 to 50 tuberculosis patients safely. Because tuberculosis was rampant in that area during that time, a much larger facility was needed. And so the massive Waverly Hill Sanatorium, as it still stands today, that structure was a self-contained facility with its own zip code. It had its own postal service. I mean, it was pretty much its own city. And so construction of that, the, the remaining massive monstrosity type of building that you see today, uh, the construction of it took place in 1926. And it could accommodate up to, I think, 400, no, about 400 plus patients. It opened on October 17th, 1926. And it served as a TB tuberculosis hospital until 1961 when the antibiotic to cure TB uh, was discovered. Uh, so the building then opened as uh, Woodhaven, let's see, Woodhaven Medical Services, which was a geriatric facility. That closed in 1981, and over the next several decades, it was nearly condemned and vandalized. So we have to give thanks to Charles and Tina Mattingly, because in 2001, they bought the property, and they made many improvements and renovations. And so today, the Waverly Hills Historical Society is a 501c3 a nonprofit organization dedicated to the preservation and restoration of the building. So that's just a very quick history. I mean, there's lots more, but we would be here for hours. So Waverly Hills at the time was pretty much on my bucket list. And when I had the chance to investigate it with GRS, it really was a dream came true. I remember driving up the windy road. And then when you got to the parking lot where you could visibly see that building I kid you not. I got out of the car. I was driving with Dale. Uh, he was driving. I was in the back seat. I got out of his car. I stood there with my jaw open for like five minutes just staring at the building. It is insane. And so uh, we prepared uh, for the first few hours. We took a walk around and inside the building. And then uh, I believe uh, we met, oh gosh, in kind of where they do presentations to talk a little bit about uh, what we were going to do for the evening. So Nicole, again, Nicole Tito and Lisa Crick and I uh, joined as uh, we became a team for that night. And we were investigating the very top floor. Uh, we did some work on the fourth floor. We did some work uh, in the morgue. And so there's actually, I think Nicole and Lisa on their, their uh, website, ghostlyvoices.com, ghost, ghostly-voices.com. There's a, a video or an audio clip in their blooper section because, <laughs> and I think I'm in that video because when we were down in the morgue, 
uh, all these bats kept flying in and like hitting us in the head. And I think there's some profanity that I, I say like, oh shit, and all this. I don't know. It's a really funny video to watch. But anyways, what struck me are the like plethora of morphing shadow figures. I mean, I'm, I was there. I saw them with my own eyes coming in and out of rooms, coming in and out of, of, of uh, walls. Some morphed more into shadow for or humanoid shadow forms than others, but just it's insane. I mean, I think over 60,000 people perished there, so it would make sense. But for whatever reason, the shadow figure phenomenon is very prevalent there. And so I, we, I remember doing an experiment where I was walking. I volunteered to walk from one end of the fourth floor to the other while being filmed. I don't know why I did that. I wasn't scared. I just volunteered and, and did that. And I didn't really have a lot of experiences doing that. But at one point, we had a couple chairs set up in the hallway on the fourth floor. And we decided to do a laser uh, grid experiment where we would shine uh, the grid down the hallway because with the grids, it's you can easily see apparitions and shadow figures morph. It highlights their presence. And that's exactly what was happening. And it was just so phenomenal to see that. And at one point, I remember shining the grid down the hallway and we clearly saw this like six foot tall shadow figure morph into a humanoid shape get in front of the grid and walk toward us which which made the grid seem as though it was coming toward us and i remember and it was bolting pretty fast and i remember all of us kind of stood up and backed up a few a few uh uh spaces so it's just a phenomenal place i mean besides the shadow figure phenomenon now when you hear of shadow figures you think of okay one is it a partially a partially manifested stage of a full-bodied apparition so in shadow form you're not seeing clothing color you're not seeing skin color you're just seeing like a dark gray or black sort of shadow to the figure then there's what's known as the classic shadow figure that is a whole different concept it's they're thought to be either extremely tall adorned in some sort of some sort of long cape uh, with a wide-brimmed hat or they're very short and they seem to want to observe the living but not interact with the living so it's very hard to spot them. You might see them peripherally. If you see them directly, it's just a fleeting second and they're gone. Sometimes they're captured on on uh, camera as well as just the uh, stage of, you know, partially manifested stage of an apparition. I think with, oh, it's thought too that the classic shadow figure, you know, some people think it 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 maybe has to do with the MIB, Men in Black, some people think it's a, a malevolent sort of entity. Some people think they're uh, alien species. I mean, there's different theories for them. I don't think that the majority of classic or the majority of the shadow figures seen at Waverly are that of the classic shadow figure. I think they're just earthbound remnants in that partially manifested stage of an apparition 
obviously not seeing skin color and clothing, just seeing an overall gray or black shadow form to their humanoid shape. I think that that's what's going on at Waverly Hills. Of course, I only spent eight hours there, so maybe I'm not qualified to say that, but that's what I think is going on there. It would make more sense. Uh, Whatever the reason, though, there's a lot of energy there, I think, too, with places like that besides the history and and how many how many people died there scores over 60,000 people sadly perished there and um you know their bodies were so other patients wouldn't see them they were privately removed and taken in what was called the death tunnel so and so going in the tunnel prevented surviving patients being treated there from seeing you know the scores of of de- of dead bodies being removed. So I think, you know, you have to look at the history. You have to, in places like Waverly, you have to look at the history. You have to look at uh, geographically, if there's anything going on there, ley lines, uh, maybe what the human element is bringing into it, you know, scores and scores of people want to investigate Waverly on a, on a monthly basis. Could that be increasing the activity there? You know, these are all things that, you need to think of. So I can't wait to go back. It's definitely a place that I am going to go back and and visit. I would love to spend maybe a week there if possible and just do several sorts of uh, uh, investigations there during that week. So definitely, if you have not been to Waverly, I suggest that you go because it's a phenomenal historical location. And I can tell you right now that we're probably not going to finish. I have like 10 or 12 (laughs) locations in here. I don't know what made me think I was going to get all of these done in one hour. Hello. Good God. Anyways, I think we have time for probably one more. So we're now coming back out to San Diego, California, and we're visiting the Maritime Museum of San Diego, which, like I said before, has many vessels there two of which are the Berkeley Ferry Boat and the Star of India. So my team has investigated both the Berkeley Ferry Boat and Star of India. They're fantastic vessels to visit. The history of them is iconic. They're both listed on the California Historic or California Register of Historic Places. I believe the Star of India is on, oh gosh, I think it's on the National Historic uh, Register of Places as well. But anyways, the Berkeley Ferry Boat uh, has a unique history. It was built by the San Francisco Union Ironworks in 1898. And until 1958, the vessel served in the San Francisco Bay Ferry System. So its main claim to fame here was its assistance with refugee evacuations to Oakland after the devastating 1906 San Francisco earthquake. So. Since that time, it's definitely became a prized vessel of the Maritime Museum of San Diego. Its California Register of Historic Places number is 1031. And so it functions today, obviously, as a museum, exhibition hall, but it has one of the best maritime libraries in the world with artifacts and numerous archive, uh, archive collections. As many of you know, and there goes Kaylee chiming in to say hello. Many of you know I've written a few books on the Queen Mary. I did a lot of my research on the Queen Mary at the at the Berkeley. 
believe it or not, she has a lot of interesting information on the Queen Mary. So besides being a historic location, of course, she's noted for having a lot of uh, paranormal activity. Pretty much, I think the activity on the Berkeley is similar to that of the Star of India. Because they're so close in proximity to each other, it makes me wonder if the energies on board the star go to the Berkeley and vice versa. So I think that that uh, could possibly happen. So one iconic experience that we had uh, was during the Maritime Ghost Conference in 2010. That was a fundraiser uh, to raise funds for the Maritime Museum, fundraiser event to raise funds for the Maritime Museum of San Diego. And uh, we had various speakers there. I know that Marie D. Jones was there. Uh, Matt Schultz of Para-Explorer Project was there. I did a presentation on the Queen Mary there. And uh, let's see, Heidi Shaw from the USS Hornet was there. It was a great conference. So uh, during the evening, myself, members of Pacific Paranormal Investigations, and a couple of other teams, we did an overnight on the Berkeley. And interestingly, we were, in addition to having other types of experiences, we kept hearing at one point this little girl, and we were all down in the boiler room at the time, and we kept hearing this little girl, and this was after hours. This was like one or two in the morning, and so myself and a member of, I think it was Tim Mountain from Pacific Paranormal Investigations, if I remember correctly, him and I went up to the exhibition area of the Berkeley just to make sure that, you know, no family got on board accidentally, anything like that. No one, no one besides us. There's a parking lot outside. There are, were no cars in the parking lot. No one walking on the sidewalk that could account for this little girl that we were hearing. And so him and I went back down and reported to the rest of the group, you know, we're not seeing anyone, we're not seeing a family that got on, nothing like that. And so we proceeded to do some EVP work and some vigil work down there. And so the following uh, clip is actually a disembodied, it's not an EVP because we heard it at the time. So this would be classified as what I term an AVP or an audible voice phenomenon. Or disembodied voice. And so this occurred about maybe 10, 15 minutes after initially hearing the little girl. And so we were down in the, again, in the boiler room and uh, we were asking this little girl questions. And so I'll go ahead and play the clip right now. Um, and then I'll talk a little bit about it after. Oh, wait. Name of clip. I think I... Hold on a second. Let me get the name. It's... Oh, gosh. Um, I think. Shoot. Hold on. Let me get the name of it. Anyways, I'll explain it while I'm getting the name of it. So, in the clip, you'll hear... Um, oh, gosh. It was... Oh, I forget who it was. Someone said... Okay, it's... M okay, wait. Sorry, MGC. Okay. Okay, there we go. So I think I had to find the name for, <laughs> for Todd to play the clip. He's like, what's the name of it? Because I have like different ones available. So we'll see if he gets it. Um, 
So, Todd, go ahead and play it if you got it. Your mom's name. Oh my goodness. Are we sure that there's no, not anyone up here? What's your mom's name? Oh my goodness. Are we sure that there's no, not anyone up here? Okay. So, um, interestingly, in that clip, you hear us addressing what's your mom's name. Now, you're going to hear some little snapping and popping in the back. That's actually the shrimp on the side of the boat doing their thing. So, that's what that is. But then you hear a whispered, almost whispered, raspy word of mommy coming through. Now, this is what's interesting about this is that we all heard this live. We heard the response of mommy live, which you can hear by the clip. But the way we heard it was we heard it like a normal, loud sounding kid's voice, like mommy. That's how we heard it. But it came through our devices, at least mine. Actually, no, I've heard of, I've listened to PPI's version too. And it's the same thing. It came through the device sounding very whispery, sounding very raspy. So that's what's interesting about that. And so you hear, I, looking back, made the mistake of saying, asking about it seconds after we heard it. I should have stayed quiet because then you hear the rest of the investigators saying, shh, shh, shh. They wanted me to be quiet in case this little girl said anything else. So in a sense, I kind of, potentially ruined the rest of that clip, although we didn't capture anything else. But it's just a very good example of a disembodied voice, like a personal experience that we had hearing the little girl being backed up by a piece of objective data. And, uh, you know, that's great when you can have that. You know, as a paranormal researcher, I'm always looking for uh instances that can, you know, the puzzle pieces that can connect. The more puzzle pieces you can connect, you know, the the more reliable your evidence is, whether it's subjective data or objective data. So whenever you can get, you know, an EVP that's backed up by a personal experience or a personal experience, and then there's an interesting photo that happens seconds after it or before it, that's all great. And we don't always get that. We, you know, as researchers, that does not always happen. So um, the Berkeley ferry boat, you know, if you're in San Diego and you really want to investigate one of San Diego's iconic haunted historical locations, you definitely want to get to uh, uh, the Maritime Museum of San Diego and do the Star of India and Berkeley. So like I said, I think I'm nuts because I thought that I was going to get through. I have Star of India on here. I have Cosmopolitan Hotel. I have some more on the Rancho Buena Vista Adobe. I have the Avo Playhouse. I have the Queen Mary. I have the USS Hornet, Hotel Del Coronado, and even a few others. I don't know 
why I thought I would get through all of these today. Obviously not. So guess what? We are going to have a ghost stories part two. So we at some point in the future and we will lead off from the Berkeley and then go straight into the star of India. So of course we don't have time for that tonight. So with a few minutes left in the show, I want to, my gosh, my voice is going. Ah. So next week, I'm having Karen Frazier uh, from the Pacific Northwest. Karen's a, a good friend of mine. I met her in 2015 uh, at the Oregon Ghost Conference, the very first Oregon Ghost Conference that I attended, and uh, know her and her husband uh, quite well. They're great people. Karen is multifaceted. She's a psychic medium. She's super knowledgeable with uh, crystals, and uh, she's a Reiki master, all kinds of good stuff. So she's going to be on next week, and we're going to talk to her all about her work. And again, I want to remind you to uh, visit the WLTKDB.com website or the Let's Talk.com website. Take some time to look through there and read about the other hosts, read about their shows. Uh, there's also a lot of services. If you need a new website done, uh, WLTKDB can do it. If you need some voiceover work, WLTKDB can do it. So take some time to... Uh, Look at that website. And uh, that's it, folks, for tonight. And I hope that you have a rest of your, uh, I hope the rest of your week is good and your upcoming weekend is relaxing. Here at the Afterlife Chronicles, we are bridging the gap between mortality and the afterlife, one experience at a time. See you next week and have a great night.